Good morning, church. I am thankful for this opportunity to share the word with you today, and also for the privilege of being an elder here. Uh, you all have truly made this uh, service that I do not a burden, but a joy. And also to my wife, Sarita, who takes on uh, extra responsibility, if that seems possible to any mom out there, uh, when I preach. So uh, she takes the kids even more and frees me up to prepare. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you are sovereign. You are in control. And even today, you are in control of the world. Lord, help us now to submit to you and see how we should submit to those who lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have been preaching through the book of Romans since last fall. We have seen how we have all rebelled against God and were deserving of his wrath. Yet God sent Jesus to take the punishment in our place. In the previous chapter in Romans 12, we were called to respond to God's gracious work of salvation by living sacrificially to him, fighting against conformity to the world with transformed thinking and a renewed mind. The chapter continues by giving specific examples and commands of the renewed mind in action. In chapter 13, we see a discussion on governing authorities. It has probably always been a topic of discussion, but in today's world of 24-hour news cycles and presidential tweets, what's happening in the government is always before our eyes, and probably even more so not too far from Washington, D.C. Congress seems to get less and less done each year. It's almost like if you're doing a performance on your job and you get a good performance rating or something, you're asking the question, man, what can I do to get better next year? And it almost seems like Congress is doing the opposite. How can I get an even lower approval rating next year? Democrats and Republicans argue about the proper roles and responsibilities of government, how much the government should be doing. When we think of the government, what should we as Christians be thinking about? In our democratic society, we can hold our elected officials responsible for how they discharge their duties. Were they responsible? Did they fulfill their campaign promises? We are rightly concerned with how well people have or will govern out of an appropriate concern for the well-being of ourselves, our families, and even other nations. That concern for others is a good expression of the sort of love for neighbor that Jesus called the great commandment. Without a doubt, if you have been loved by God and put your faith in Christ, it should impact how you vote. As an aside, we should be gracious and charitable when discussing these matters with other believers. But to quote the late President John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. 
while President Kennedy was talking about coming together for the common good of our countrymen, as Christians, God has called us to do for country based upon a more noble reason. In today's passage, we will learn what responsibility we have to the state. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. And it reads, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are, do, are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So the author's big idea here, submit to the government because they are God's servants for our good. I just finished seminary, so no matter what passage I preach from, I can always find three points. <laughs> the first point, submit to governing authorities for their authority is from God. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the governing authorities and submitting to them. First, we see the scope. Let every person, rich or poor, young or old, Jew or Gentile, everyone is to submit to the government. No one is above the law. Submission is not a new concept for Christians. Slaves were called to submit to their masters. Children are called to honor and obey their parents. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. And we as members are called to submit to our church leaders. Now, kids, you may think that being an adult is great because you can finally get to do whatever you want, right? You're like, man, I get to be 18. I have the car, I have some freedom, can do whatever I want. Well, this passage, along with many others, and the experience of every adult that you could ever talk to, show us that God has ordered the world in such a way that no one is their own boss. No matter where you turn or what you do, someone is in charge of you. Everyone in one sphere or another is called to submit. 
And we are called to submit to governing authorities. So in our context, the government is lawmakers, the laws themselves and law enforcement. Government executives like mayors, governors, the president, and also the courts. Now this next point is foundational. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by him. Throughout most of human history, who was in charge was determined by birth in a certain family, military might, or unrivaled wealth. So it is a great privilege that we can take part in selecting many of our government leaders. But even if the senator, governor, sheriff, or president we supported doesn't get selected, we are still called to submit to whoever is in that position. Why we submit is important, though. Our motivation for why we do things matters. We don't respect and submit to the government out of mere reverence for our founding fathers or our great love for the Constitution. We respect the office and submit to whoever is in charge because God has put them there. Government leaders didn't rise up while God was sleeping or otherwise occupied. We know that God never slumbers or sleeps. He is always watching, always awake, always in charge. He is sovereign. Whatever authority anyone has is by God's design. Regardless of how out of control the world may seem, despite the terrible effects of death and destruction brought about by sin, God is in control and is overall. Any other authority that there will ever be still falls under his jurisdiction. Now, Romans 13 is not the only place in the Bible that recognizes God's sovereignty in selecting rulers. Acts 13, verse 22, summarizes the transition of power from Israel's first king, Saul, who was killed in battle, to the second king, David, by saying simply, God removed David, I mean Saul, and made David their king. In Daniel, God's people, the Jews, were taken into Babylon in exile. There they had to be under a pagan king who would later build a grand golden statue of himself and call everyone to worship it. Even in Babylon, as one of the king's wise men, Daniel, in chapter 2, verse 21, tells the king that God removes and sets up kings. A very famous example in John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate, the Roman governor over their area, is questioning Jesus as he determines whether or not to punish him. To Pilate's surprise, Jesus has not been pleading his case to be released, though he was clearly innocent. I mean, that's not how any of us would respond when we're innocent. We fight tooth and nail, regardless if it's, did you put the toilet seat down or... Did you do this or that? We fight when we feel we're innocent, we're being wrong, but Jesus did not. Pilate says in verse 10, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you 
and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered in verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. I mean, this is incredible. Jesus, God himself, the creator of all, who created Pilate, who is now being threatened by Pilate. Pilate could crucify him. Jesus says that the authority that he has has been given to him by God. This news is incredibly good. It's good because of God's character. God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to all who call upon him. He is a father to the fatherless and a strong tower we can run to in times of need. God is just and he is holy. He knows all and is perfectly wise. While some say if there is a God, he's more like a watchmaker, kind of winding it up. This is for like an old mechanical kind of watch, not like a digital watch, but bear with me. He's winding it up and then just letting it go. And wherever it goes is where it goes. But this passage gives us a very different picture of God's personal involvement in our world. While we may occasionally miss a deadline to vote, God has installed every authority that there is. Now, we may not understand why certain people are in charge at certain times. As a matter of fact, that's probably how we feel most of the time. But we can rest knowing that God has a plan and a purpose for that person being in charge at this particular time. Now, God is in control regardless of who's in power. Democrats, progressives, conservatives, liberals, republicans, libertarians, independents can all be used. We can spend so much time hand-wringing over who's in charge or who's going to be in charge that we can completely overlook how we are to behave toward whoever is in charge. We can't control who's in power, but we will be judged on how we relate to them. What makes us different from the world is that we submit ourselves regardless of who's in charge because we know who ultimately is in charge. Verse 2, to resist them is to resist what God has appointed. Now, just as it's incredibly good news that God is in charge and God put them there, if you are to resist the authorities, it is terribly bad news for you. Since God has established and instituted whoever's in charge, when we resist the authorities, it is not simply an act of rebellion against government authority, but ultimately a rebellion against God's authority. This doesn't mean that every action that the government does is right or has God's endorsement. This is a very important point, and it's one that's obvious. And we must resist if someone tells us to do what God has forbidden. Like when they told Peter and John to stop telling people about Jesus. We must say along with them, we must obey God rather than men. But apart from those times where government is telling us to sin, we are to comply to what they say. As followers of Christ, we should not be the ones looking for an excuse to break the law and rebel, and rebel against the authorities. If we're honest, though, 
this is rarely why we want to ignore or resist the authorities. The government doing something wrong, listen, is not why you're mad at the police officer for pulling you over for only going 10 over the speed limit. All sin is at its core rejecting God's authority. When we sin, we defiantly ask like Pharaoh in Exodus 5, 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And if we are so bold that we would disregard God's authority, it's no wonder we would bristle at the government trying to tell us what to do. We are a fiercely independent people. I reiterate that we should be skeptical of the nobility and correctness of our opposition to governing authorities. My wife, Sarita, brought this up to me last week. Uh, they did a summer study on contentment, and they were talking about, in that book, our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve were made without sin. They were perfect. They lived in the perfect environment. As husband and wife, they had a perfect relationship with one another. They were innocent. They had none of the baggage that we have, none of the sin, destruction, corruption. They didn't have to sin. They also had perfect communion and fellowship with God. Yet even with all of those advantages over us, they still chose autonomy over submission. Let that be instructed to us to think that Everything we do is because we are right and we have the right point and government is wrong. We are a people who likes to reject authority. We like to do what we want. Those who resist will incur judgment. God does not turn a blind eye to rebellion. Resisting who God has instituted will result in judgment. And we'll see this developed a bit more as we continue on. On to point two. Do good because the government serves God by commending good conduct and punishing bad conduct. We see this in verses three and four. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. At the very least, when you're doing good, you don't have to fear the authorities. You'll be at peace with them. So think about apps like Waze, right? So if you've ever used the app Waze, one of the benefits of Waze is it's kind of crowdsourced. So if there's construction ahead or something like that, then you can get additional information to help plan your route. It also tells you where there are speed traps, where police officers are. The idea is if you have that or if you have a radar detector, you can speed as much as you want and have a more leisurely drive because you know you can slow down right before the police come, right? So it's like a much more advanced version of seeing them up ahead and kind of stepping on your brakes. But do you know what's even more relaxing? Trying to drive the speed limit. <laughs> it is an incredibly relaxing way to drive. When a police officer is, has their lights on and driving behind you, you aren't thinking, oh no, is it me again? No, you're, you're like, oh, okay, here's the police. Serving and protecting. I'll move out of the way. Put on my blinker, right? <laughs> but commendation 
by the government could also mean some sort of recognition. It could be like the Medal of Honor, which is the highest honor uh, in military service. It recognizes U.S. military service members who have distinguished themselves by acts of valor. Or the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award in the country. And that can be given for a variety of reasons, including significant contributions toward world peace. It could also be things such as churches not having to pay taxes, for example. I think that is another example where the government is commending this thing which is good. Acts of valor and efforts toward a more peaceful society and certainly worship of God are things that should be encouraged and applauded. And the government is recognizing and honoring those things. Now, the government also serves God by punishing wrongdoing. It says in verse 3 that they are a terror to those who do wrong. It also says that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. So while we as individuals don't take vengeance, the state can and does avenge on behalf of God to the benefit of society. Now that may be uh, a jail term or something like that, but it could also certainly be capital punishment. Now, what's interesting is that in bearing the sword, the state is said to be carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, you may ask, particularly if you aren't a Christian, why is there this talk of wrath? Why, does that, why is that relevant? Why does that matter? Well, think of this example. I use this often when I'm sharing the gospel. Um, so imagine if you were to get into an altercation with a homeless person, someone who lives on the street. The argument got heated, and you attacked this person. You felt like you had a good reason to, but you attacked them. What would be the repercussions of that? I mean, maybe you would be arrested. Maybe, depending on where you are, no one may even bat an eye. Now think of that same scenario when you get into an altercation at the traffic stop. Now you've been driving 10 miles per hour over the speed limit. The cop pulls you over. You say, no, my speedometer is broken. He doesn't believe you. He tells you to get out of your car, and you punch him. What do you think would be the repercussion for that? His partner is in the car, by the way you would at least be arrested. <laughs> and they might put the handcuffs on pretty tight. Now, what were to happen if the arguments on Twitter against the president actually amounted to more than that? He said something this time that really just set you off. And you're like, oh, man, I'm really going to make America great again. You go up to the White House, somehow you get in. You go over the gate. I mean, st this stuff has been happening. Uh, <laughs> you go over the gate. You somehow make your way in. You see the president, and you try to give him a knockout punch. What do you think would happen? Do you think you would even land a punch? Do you think there would be great outrage if you were taken out on the spot? No. There wouldn't be great outrage. 
there is a recognition that those who are in positions of authority and deserving of more honor, if you are to oppose them and go against them, then the punishment needs to be worse. It is a worse offense. While it's terrible to attack anyone, whether a homeless person or anyone else, everyone has honor and dignity bestowed upon us by God. We're made in his image. But those whom God has put in authority to oppose them, to attack them, is a terrible offense. Now we take that one step further. God, who has made everything, who even when we sin gives us the very breath and strength to oppose him. He has given us everything that we have. And he has commanded us to obey. And we have disobeyed him times without number. I mean, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, I submit to you that we've never done that. Never with all of our hearts. That's got to be the worst sin, right? Breaking the greatest commandment. The punishment for that has got to be exponentially worse than what would happen if you go against the president. This is the reality as you oppose even the government officials, that you are not just opposing them, you are opposing God. And when the government officials rightly punish what's wrong, they are in concert with God. Now, some may think that maybe God isn't real because you sin and God doesn't apparently do anything. But even examples like this, where the government is punishing people, throwing them in jail, sometimes executing people. Even this, this is just bits and pieces, glimpses of God's judgment and his involvement in the world. And frankly, it is um, in some ways a grace to us to see that there are consequences for going against him and going against authority. Now, I can hear a potential objection. Well, wait about corrupt governments, right? Government officials, those who approve of evil and punish what is good. Well, in a sinful world full of sinful people, governments many times could be out of step with God's standard for right and wrong. We certainly see this in our society today where sinful views of sexuality are not only allowed but endorsed and promoted. The right to abort babies is somehow protected by our Constitution, though the word is not in there. How are we to respond? And how does this compare to prior times? Maybe things are really as bad as they've ever been, right? Well, Paul was aware of that reality. He lived in a society where they were literally given the command to worship Caesar. They would go around and they have these incense. The Roman soldiers would come around and it's like, hey, it's time to do your little Caesar worship now. Come on, Caesar is Lord. Come on, do it. This is the society that he lived in. Paul was also aware of Jesus' mistreatment by the authorities. The religious and civil leaders at the time, conspired 
to release a murderous insurrectionist and to crucify the most innocent man there ever was. They committed the most overt expression of commending what is wrong and condemning what is right. But amazingly, God used the most terrible evil ever to bring about the greatest good ever. We would not be here if that terrible evil had never happened. He used the ultimate rejection of him to fulfill his purpose for his glory and ultimately our good as well. We also recognize that the ultimate commendation or punishment comes from the Lord. The one who was treated unjustly, Jesus, now has become the judge of all and his judgments are perfectly right. Amen. Now, even in our fallen world with sinful leaders, God uses governments for our good. Now, have you heard of the movie The Purge? Now, there have been multiple, that's a, that's a, you know, there have been multiple versions of this movie. And the idea is, you know what, hey, things are bad. Everyone's got pent up rage. So just, you know, certain time of the year, it's just cleansing to just have no law enforcement. Everyone just do whatever you want for one day, and then we stop. But for one day, you can just do whatever you want. That is the world without government. It is anarchy, violence, and unrestrained evil. God uses governments to maintain order and punish wrongdoers. So do good. Listen to them. Submit to them. To the last point, point three, fulfill your civic duty in both action and attitude to honor God. So in verse six and seven, it says, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And it says in verse 5 as well, Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That means that we as Christians are not worried simply about being caught or about potential punishment. We worry about what is right and wrong and whether or not our actions are pleasing to God. And this is not just limited to how we relate to the authorities. Clearly this is the, all of the Christian life. We wonder, what does God have to say about this? And that is what we as Christians strive to do. The Roman Christians were already showing their submission by paying taxes. It is good to pay taxes. We pay them because it funds the government so that it can serve God's purposes. Now, I can also hear another objection. Well, what about when the government would misuse the money to support things that God would condemn? That does not excuse us from what God has commanded. If the Roman citizens, the Roman Christians were paying taxes to support the idolatrous worship and part of Caesar, then certainly we don't have an out. Christians should not have to be tracked down by the IRS. We shouldn't be waiting for them to come and get us and taking the money out of our cold hands. We should joyfully give the money to support what God has instituted. 
Now, we pay taxes. We also give respect and honor. Now, this is harder. While taxes and revenue are simple actions that can be done devoid of feeling, giving respect and honor forces a heart check. If anyone has ever been a child here, which all of us have, then you know you are told to do something by your parents, and there are times when you do it, maybe they tell you to sit down, and you say, well, I'm sitting down, but I'm standing up in my heart. I'm doing what you say, but I don't like it. I'm going to show you I don't like it, and I'm not going to give you the respect that you deserve. And as parents, that is infuriating, because you know that is not the standard. It's not just do what I say, it's do it when I say with a respectful attitude. That's what God commands. And that's not just applicable to parent and child relationships, but applicable here to our relationship with the government. The consequences to failing to pay your taxes are obvious. The IRS almost never loses a man. They'll always catch you. But if we're disrespectful on Facebook, there may be no immediate consequence except fall out from your Facebook friends, unless maybe you have a TV show or something. Um, so there may be some fallout through social media. But in general, there's less fallout. Since this reflects a heart attitude, respecting and honoring, we know God has appointed the government, and we know that we are called to honor them, and we must ask for help to do it, frankly. It's difficult. And in our culture where dishonor is cultivated and disrespect flourishes, we have to ask God to help us. I think of Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And it reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. This is Jesus. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness in, in inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Paul echoes Jesus in saying that we are to give to the government what they are owed. But we owe God our whole lives, our very existence. And if you're a Christian, you owe him your salvation. What does it profit a man to respect the government and lose his soul? We are called to submit ourselves to God. We are to turn away from sin and embrace Jesus. The answer to this command is not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder. It is to recognize the futility in simply trying harder to change your heart. Instead, it is to admit our defectiveness and insist upon God for help. And he has sent that help in the form of Jesus. 
In conclusion, though the government is used by God and is his servant, they can only do so much. Some crimes go unsolved. Some officials really do worry more about themselves getting reelected than about their constituents. Some legislation gets stopped due to lobbyists with deep pockets. Ultimately, the government has limited ability and oftentimes have skewed priorities and decisions due to being sinful. The question is, what do we really want? I think we want to live in a world with perfect peace and harmony, a place where there are no more wars, where there's no need for FEMA because natural disasters never strike, a place without school shootings, prejudice, terrorism, and poverty, a place where the elderly live and are respected and provided for, a place where God is revered and his worship never ceases. We also want a leader who is perfectly wise, compassionate, powerful, just, and relatable. We will never have that in this life. Even if we elect all the officials that we want, I mean, you pick the perfect slate. We stack the courts, we stack the local governments, I mean, down to the principal at your elementary school, everyone could be stacked just as we want, and it still wouldn't be this. But in the new heavens and new earth, we will. That is a place where death and sadness is gone, and the Son of God wipes away every tear. Where we no longer have to tell others about God because everyone already knows and loves him. A place where Christ himself provides all the light that is needed. Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. Frankly, this is not the Christian's home. We are in the world, but not of it. We will never quite fit in. We will be misunderstood, and our customs will seem foreign. The culture at large will never adopt our ways. But that's okay because we aren't setting up a kingdom here. We aren't called to bring heaven down to earth. We are here as ambassadors of a greater kingdom, showing people what that kingdom is like and inviting them to submit to the greatest king there ever was who was offering uh, not just amnesty, but sonship, adoption. The beauty of the kingdom of God is the entrance fee for citizenship has been paid for. There are no caps. If you are not a Christian today, please take heed of these warnings. And if you are a Christian today, marvel at what God has done and thank him for setting up a government that allows us to live in a peaceful way. Pastor Adam was right earlier when he mentioned praying for the government officials. This is a right response, knowing the responsibility they have and knowing their limitations, and many times their glaring limitations. It is right to pray for them because that will help bring peace in this world and allow us to continue to follow Christ in an unfettered way. Take heed of these warnings. Take heed of these instructions. And turn to Christ for all that we need. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we don't understand all of your ways. We may say we wouldn't do it this way. But Lord, we know that you are all wise. Your plans will never be stopped, and they are the best plans. You will truly bring about the best existence ever. Lord, help us in this time now to submit, as difficult as it may be, to sinful leaders. But we pray for our leaders that they would be noble and honorable, that they would make it even easier for us to submit to them. Lord, help them to use the resources that we provide through taxes in a good way that protects people and provides many useful benefits. Lord, help our hearts to honor those who you say to honor. And Lord, open the eyes of those who can't see who not only disregard the government, but disregard your commands. Lord, help them to see the futility of their ways and the destructiveness of the path that they're on. Open their eyes, prick their hearts, and cause them to want to come to the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.